always remember who you are because the success brings great things. I have met the most amazing people. I get to meet them because of my success. I get to keep them because I try to be a decent human being. Don't confuse the trappings of your success, which are absolutely associated to the position you had. Appreciate the trappings of success because you have a higher likelihood of keeping them and making the most out of them. Welcome to Friends of Build Magazine. I'm your host, Ted Bainbridge. I've been traveling the world and working in publications for 30 years. In 2016, we launched our first issue of Build Magazine, a publication dedicated to high-end home construction, renovation, and the innovative experts that make this possible. This podcast was created to have some fun and explore those who have taken on the challenge of building luxury homes in demanding locations. From navigating logistics and construction to excavating the earth, we want to learn more about these people and how their projects became cover-worthy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I am here in Delray Beach, Florida, uh, with a business coach from CEO Coaching by the name of Lou Jaffa. Lou's got an incredible story and has done some amazing things. So normally we start with the American dream as the last thing. Well, we don't start. We close with that. But today we're going to start with it because you're some smart kid who went to Penn grew up in the inner city, and obviously you've done a few things that have turned out right. Well, I'll start off with luck trumps skill. <laughs> but with that said, I think it's really important that you have to put yourself in a position to be lucky. So if you surround yourself with bad people, your luck is going to be bad. If you surround <laughs> yourself with good people, your luck is going to be good. You and know, nobody says that. But it's true. It, it makes sense. It, it's a thousand percent true. And it's interesting. God, a gazillion years ago, there was a book named The Celestine Prophecy. Um, and it was really hot. Everybody was reading it. It was this spiritual book. But it was fascinating because it was actually a combination of a spiritual book and a detective novel. And the detective was looking for all of the insights in life. And chapter four was, there are no coincidences. And the concept of that insight was there's no coincidences. There are just seized and missed opportunities. And that's really what luck is. Luck is being aware of an opportunity and taking that path. So we've all so many times in our lives. I mean, after I sold PictureTel, okay. um, I was interviewed to be the CEO of Polaroid. And I blew the interview, and we can talk about how I blew the interview. I thought I had done enough research, but I messed up on one, one thing. But one of the guys in the meeting calls me up the next day. And he says, listen, they're, they're, they're not going to hire you um, because I think you were a little too honest in the interview. But I thought you were a really good guy. Would you like to come to New York and talk about opportunities? And at that point, I have two paths. I could go screw you. You're not going to hire me. Why do I want to spend any time with you? Or, oh, you're kind enough to say, come visit me. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So I go and I visit him. And we're having this great conversation. And his phone rings. And of course, and I'm sure you've had this experience, you're in somebody's office and they answer their phone. And now you have to become invisible because you're the uninvited guest that was actually right. invited. Yes. And so I'm like over on the wall looking at the books on his bookshelves and I'm trying not to pay attention. And he goes, Lou, what do you know about the restaurant business? And I go, nothing. And a couple of minutes later, he goes, Lou, can you sit on the audit committee of a public company? I said, yeah, that, that I can do. Lou, do you want to go to Florida tomorrow and meet a buddy of mine, Rocky Aoki? And I'm going, Benny Hanna, Rocky Aoki? Seriously? Yeah. And he, he says, yeah. And I said, okay. And again, I had a choice. I could have said, I don't want to get on an airplane. Right. He's not saying, Lou, I will send you. It's Lou, will you go into your pocket and buy a ticket to Miami? Absolutely. And he hangs up the phone and he tells me a little bit about Rocky. And he says, so how do you know if you're not a restaurant guy, how do you know about Rocky Aoki? And I said, everybody in graduate school reads the Benihana case. And to tell you the truth, um, that's how I remember him. What I didn't say is, to tell you the truth, I didn't read the case. <laughs> I skimmed the case. I sat as low as I could in class not to get called on. And life was going to be good. So I go to the airport. I mean, I don't go to the airport. I go to the public library and I get a copy of the case. And Because I now you've got a reason to read yeah, it. <laughs> I study the case. <laughs> and I fly to Miami and Rocky meets me. And he starts asking me questions about what I know about restaurants. And I answer right out of the case. Whatever he said was important about a restaurant, that's what I said back to him. And he goes, would you like a board seat on Benihana? Oh, come on. And that's how I ended up on the Benihana board. Simply because a series of lucky events. I did a good job in the interview, but I didn't get a job. By the way, the company was Polaroid. It filed for bankruptcy six months later. As good as I think I am when my ego allows me to believe I'm good, not I would have not good. saved them from that <laughs> bankruptcy. But what had I not taken that interview? What if I didn't say to Bert, sure, I'll come visit you? What if I didn't say, sure, I'll go to Miami? What if I said to myself, oh, show up unprepared? Were any of those things luck? Were they skill? Or were we just... There are no coincidences. They're just seized and missed opportunities, and I try to seize on something. So that's just be open-minded is the lesson out of that one. And it was a great 15 years before we sold the company um, that I was on that board. And I learned a lot about restaurants, and I learned a lot about real estate, and I learned a lot about interacting with people. It was, it was like the most phenomenal experience. And I used to get to eat for free in the restaurant, which wasn't a bad perk. Benny Hanna's a good restaurant. A lot of fun. You know, as you're telling me that story, I'm thinking about Ben Hogan. There's a plaque on the 18th hole at Marion, and you're a, you're a golfer. And Marion, obviously, is a Pennsylvania mm -hmm. iconic golf course. And he hit a one iron on the 72nd hole. Only God can hit a one iron. Yeah, I know. And he, he nailed it. And it was a kick away. And they said, Mr. Hogan, that was the most incredible shot. He goes, it was a shot. I've hit that shot a thousand times on the driving range. You know, I know that you play basketball at Penn. And I'm thinking about the, the final four. 
and I'm thinking about Michael Jordan hitting that iconic shot, which is now the logo of of Air Jordan. Right. And you you talk about luck because I'm not a basketball player. You are. And I look at it and I go, Jordan would always in the clutch seem to nail the shot and want the ball. And is that preparedness? Is that... Well, muscle memory plays into it. Well, you know, it's, it's a little bit of all of that because... First of all, I think back to one of my favorite movies, The Replacements, when Gene Hackman says to uh, Keanu Reeves, winners always want the ball. So I think there's an element of that. But I also think about an interview as a Boston guy, and I lived in Boston for most of my adult life, and I had Celtic season tickets, and I was a big fan. Um, Were you there when Larry Bird was there? Oh, yeah. I had season tickets the entire bird McHale era, and it was phenomenal. But Larry Bird... Um, was interviewed. He won the three-point contest shootout. Yep. Um, one year, and the next to last shot, he was halfway up and he pulled the ball back, and then he retook the shot and it went in. And Jim Gray was interviewing him and said, "I've never seen somebody do that. Why did you do that?" And he said, "Because I didn't see it go in in my mind's eye." And I think that's true about Jordan too. You know, when you get to that level. You have this incredible muscle memory, but there is a mind-body connection, no different in golf. If you have a 1,000 swing shots, you have a horrible, horrible shot. If you have one or two swing shots and you think, I'm, I'm going to hit a draw, you just get that, this is what I'm going to hit, and your body just connects to it. And I think that is so true. It's and, and how many times have we all screwed up because we overthink something? Yes. And I'm not saying we shouldn't think through the situation and the potential unintended consequences, but we overthink things or even worse, right? Not making a decision is a decision, right? I can fix 100 bad decisions. I can't fix an indecision. What if Jordan didn't take the shot because he was looking for something slightly better and the clock ran out. So there are a hundred things that are going on in that microsecond. It just seems like it would be so much more difficult when, like I'm a hockey player, and so Wayne Gretzky, and we went to the hockey game last night, and the Panthers played great, and it was, it was great fun. But I look at Jordan. I'm a golfer by, you know, I've been a golfer since I was eight years old. The ball doesn't move. A basketball moves. Players move. Hockey players move. And to see Jordan, I can still see that shot in the back of my mind as the clock's running out and he nails it and he's got his tongue out, which is classic Jordan. But there's so many variables. How do you nail it? Well, clearly some people just do. You know, um, I I, I did this summer basketball camp one year and it was players – and some pros that were in their first two years, and it was, it was a really great experience. One of the pros was a guy named Artis Gilmore. Artis Gilmore's nickname was the A-Train. He was one of the, in, back in those days, there were not a lot of seven-footers. And Artis was huge. And I learned two critical lessons from Artis Gilmore. Number one, don't take a charge from a guy that outweighs you by 90 pounds. Because <laughs> that's going to hurt. And number two, you can't outrun reach. Certain people have a certain set of skills that you can't duplicate. Okay. So you have to figure a way around what are your skills that their skills don't play into. 
right? So he had this incredible reach. But for every gain you have, there's also a loss. Because he is so big, if you can get him to move in one direction, and if you're fast enough, he can't. He may be able to, to, to use his reach, but he can't use his body and you can get beneath his reach if you get him in motion. Okay. If he's still, he's covering a lot of territory. But, right, one of your laws of physics, a body in motion stays in motion until another, um, another force acts upon it. So if you can get him going in one way, you go the other because then he can't reach you. So you use his strength against him. And that's true in business, right? Nobody is going to be able to compete currently with Elon Musk at Tesla. Right. But it doesn't mean there won't be other electric cars. They just have to figure out a way to do something that he doesn't do. Or how did Elon grow his business? He changed the nature of distribution channels. Whoever thought you'd be selling cars in a, in a, in a mall? Right. But he changed the entire because he was going up against the auto industry and the way Ford and BMW and everybody else have been doing it for a gazillion years. He said, I can't compete against that. What can I compete against? Isn't that how you build a business? Look at your business. Yeah. You're not going to compete against everybody, but your product looks so different and casts an image so different than everybody else's. You're, you do something that they can't do or that they won't do, but your customers appreciate that. And again, that's part of success. So are you saying when you look at, when you look at how things are being done, you look, you've got to come up with some sort of twist to that or, or even polar opposite. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about Carvana, which is a slot machine for vehicles. But it's such a clever, and they deliver the vehicles to your homes, whereas traditional dealerships are you walk in the lot, you deal with the salesperson you don't, you don't generally want to talk to, and then you buy or you don't buy a car. And yet now, the way they're selling cars, whether it be Costco, Carvana, Tesla is an incredible case study. And Absolutely. what would Sam Walton do? Because he changed distribution. Absolutely. But it's going. It's so funny. You don't want to talk to the sales guy. I'll talk to the sales guy. It's when they take me into the office with the business <laughs> manager. That's when things run amok. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's you know there was a Steve Jobs quote once that I always found interesting. Anybody can be different. The keys to be importantly different. Okay, we all loved our BlackBerry back in the day. Yes. We loved that physical keyboard. Loved it because you got that feedback, you felt the clicks, you knew exactly where your thumbs were, and here comes the iPhone. So he couldn't tell you, gee, yeah, we have an inferior keyboard, because the truth of the matter is the touchscreen is inferior to the old BlackBerry keyboard. Okay. You were much more accurate on the BlackBerry keyboard. So what does he do? He goes... That keyboard is permanent. When he first introduced the iPhone, it wasn't about you losing the keyboard. It's look at all the additional screen space you're getting when you're using the phone. So he took, he, he didn't deny his weakness. He just didn't discuss it, but he discussed his strength. But Apple is such a great example. Um, when I teach, I talk about the concept of the chocolate cake company. 
And what I mean by the chocolate cake company, there are some people that invent stuff from scratch. It's never been done before, and they're the first. But if you take a look at the iPhone, it's the perfect example of what I refer to as the chocolate cake company. There's always been cocoa, there's always been eggs, there's always been flour, there's always been water. Some people bake a chocolate cake, and a diabetic will ask for another slice. They'll yes. take the risk because it's so good. So good. And some people will bake a chocolate cake, and you can't even throw it in the ocean. The ocean will throw it back. It's so horrible. <laughs> right? Same and ingredients, different results. Right. The iPhone. Steve Jobs did not invent the touchscreen. Corning did. Didn't invent the microchip. Didn't invent the solid-state hard drive. Didn't invent any of the elements. But he put them together in a way nobody else did before. When people are thinking about starting their businesses, and that's something that kills engineering companies, of which, as you know, I've run a couple of companies who are based in engineering, we get that not invented here mentality. We can do it better. You know, maybe the doing it better is how you assemble it. Maybe the doing it better is the value you're creating for your customer. It's not necessarily we're so proud of ourselves because we're so freaking smart. We do it better than anybody else. Um, I, I had an investor early on that once said to me when I showed them this amazing product, and I was like beaming because we did something nobody else had done before. And he goes, you see that look you have on your face? That's a customer's look. Stop being enamored with your own stuff. That's the customer's job. Your job is to make them enamored. And that is such a mind shift. Boy, the that's difference a great, between that's success a and comment. failure. And, it, 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 and it's these lessons, you know, we're all a collection of all of the lessons we've learned along our lives. And again, going back to their nose coincidences, that could have been a throwaway line that he said to me and I could have ignored him. But it has impacted me my entire life. It's not about me. It's about the person on the other side of the table. So how did you relay? Because you've had, what you've told me is you've had three companies that you've built from an idea to they did over $100 million in sales. I've been a lucky guy. Surround yourself with brilliant people and let the players play. Okay, so how did you get them to, to look at it from a different paradigm? Not that we didn't invent it here. Well, you know, the, the most important thing, and we hear it all the time, and some of us poo-poo it and some of us don't, corporate culture is king. And if you break that word down to its core root, it's cult, C-U-L-T, yep. is at the root of corporate culture. So what is the cult you want to have? And, you know, one of my favorite public speakers and thought leaders is Simon Sinek. And he does a whole thing on the power of why. When people understand and Love believe. Love that video. Yeah. When they understand and believe in the why. And so a leader's superpower is communication. If you think about it, a leader has no power. If you choose not to follow, I'm not a leader. But if my superpower is communication. And if I can communicate to you a compelling reason to get something done and I can help you see why it makes sense and I listen to you when you say that doesn't make sense and I am malleable enough to say you know 
I'm going to incorporate what you're saying into what I'm doing. Because the leader doesn't have to have 100% of the ideas. The leader has to pick the best ideas. Yep. And, and that's part of a corporate culture thing. Because I know in the organizations that I ran, because I was a listener, all of the other people that worked for me were listeners. Because people that weren't listeners didn't fit in. And there is a level of self-selection. So I'm not saying we'd never had trouble employees, and I'm never, not going to say we never had people that didn't listen. But in some respects, they, through the self-selection, they either were put in places where they could do their best work because you needed a solo performer to do that. Or they slowly evolved over time. But it's, it's amazing. Companies that don't focus on their corporate culture ultimately lose, right? L look at SpaceX. Their culture is innovation. Do it the best way you can, and you have a lot of autonomy. I remember visiting SpaceX when I lived in Los Angeles, and, you know, one of the things they were telling me, if you worked at McDonnell Douglas and you broke a screwdriver, you have to fill out 85 forms, you have to go to a special tool crib that's only open certain hours of the day to get a specific screwdriver, you work at SpaceX, it's across the street from Home Depot. You break a screwdriver, you get a screwdriver. Really not highly problematic, <laughs> but it saves an awful lot of money and time and Seriously? job satisfaction. Seriously. They make it that simple? Yeah. It's, again, going back, it's a customer's job to make your life complicated. It's not your job to make their job complicated. Okay, so I want to go back, because you, you talked about Apple, and I want to go back to when Steve, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak started it. And you've obviously got a great computer brain. That's how, you know, you're engineer by trade. So... How did Jobs, Jobs, I remember he failed and failed and succeeded and failed and, you know, and then he got fired, the board threw him out for a variety of reasons, and then he comes back stronger than ever. Okay. So, number one, we rarely learn from our successes. Smart people learn from their failures. It's only a failure, technically, if you didn't learn from it. Okay, so... Jobs was fired. What did he do? You know, he went and he started Next Computer. Yep. And he took the things he wasn't good at. And really, I, I think as much as he had an ego, and there were, there were a lot of negative things that nobody talks about. And, and, and you know, it's not my job to, to, to talk ill of the dead. But, but he wasn't perfect. But he was a learner and a lifelong learner. And a visionary, he understood the person on the other side of the table. He understood the consumer, and he knew how to lead the consumer. He was so self-consumed when he was Apple before Scully took over. And listen, Scully, who was brilliant at Pepsi, was not so brilliant at, at, at Apple. So when Jobs came back, there were all of the lessons that he learned which he did accept that he was fired and why, and he, he did improve on those things. And when he came back, so yes, he had an ego, they need me, which fed into his, he needed his ego stroked. But he also realized, I don't want to screw up again. But he did, and the company almost went bankrupt. 
you know, one of my favorite Wall Street Journal headlines of all times, if you remember when iTunes first came out, yep. you could only use iTunes on an Apple computer because everything that Apple does is a closed ecosystem. Yep. And Apple needed money. And who did Jobs get the money from when they almost went bankrupt? Bill Gates. I was going to say Microsoft. And Gates only had, other than obviously he had to pay the money back, but he only had one condition. You can use iTunes on a, on a PC, not just on an Apple. It changed everything and made it ubiquitous everywhere. But the best was the Wall Street Journal headline, which was hell hath frozen over. Because jobs who 99% of what they do is in this closed ecosystem realize this one time, that's not such a bad thing. Because he also realized he opened up a market. Right? If, if, if only Apple users could buy music, it was a limited market. Interesting. Look how he changed the world because anybody could now buy music. Not that anybody buys music anymore because obviously streaming has changed that world, which is a whole different conversation. But also take a look at, you know, look at what Jobs has done in, in, in changing the way and what the iPhone does in the concept of apps. Listen, software has been around since software has been around. And everybody, whether you had a mainframe computer or whether you had a PC, you had software. We never called it an app, but in the case, it was a software application. Look what Jobs did. He, Apple develops this technology, the iPhone, and they develop a software and a programming language. And they put a couple of applications on the phone. When you get your iPhone, it can make a phone call. It can be a calculator. It can be a web browser. It can be a text messenger. It's got a couple of applications. But he's got a gazillion people out there that build applications to make his product more valuable. Right. <laughs> I know. And they give him up to 30% of their revenue just to put their application on his phone, or he won't let you put the application so on his phone. So he's got free R&D. So to some extent, his closed ecosystem works. And to some extent, when he needed to be open, he was open. That's the perfect example of... Not invented here? Well, sometimes it should be invented here. Sometimes it shouldn't be invented here. And it's the hybrid. Because the truth of the matter is, with the exception of marriage, when the husband's always wrong, because I found that out, either I was wrong or I really was wrong. <laughs> but either way, I was wrong. But it's never an all or nothing. Even though I'm a digital guy, right? It's on, off, one, zero. There's, there's electricity. There's no electricity. So we're very, it's a very binary world when you talk about software, but in the real world, it's analog, it's amplitude, it's how high does it go, how low does it go. Everything's a hybrid. Nothing's all or nothing. And if we build our business looking at the best practices that everybody else has and then fine-tune them to our own special sauce, the key is to be importantly different, not just to be different. Look at, look at how these companies... SpaceX, at the end of the day, the same physics that makes a NASA rocket fly makes a SpaceX rocket fly. They couldn't, they didn't change science. It's just, those guys are so smart. I remember watching the movie Hidden That's why they figures. call them rocket scientists. Oh, yeah, those and brain surgeons. Those are the two smartest, those are the two smartest people in the, uh, yeah. It's good stuff. Uh, so, 
how often you mentioned about uh, you mentioned about technology and uh, how things are changing how often do you think businesses change the the whole environment so that you can take the same uh, cake mix but reshuffle it and have something completely different every five years every 20 years well I think it's different between business and industry okay I think industries usually slow change slow and I think changes there's two types of change some changes happen like overnight I mean I'm a smart guy when the iPad came out I thought my god and we built a business about watching movies on airplanes and at airports on the iPad okay I thought it was the greatest movie device had a great battery life great way to I was the customer and built a company around it but however in a million years, I never thought it was going to change medicine or ordering in a restaurant. Or I, I didn't have the vision to do all that. So I look at them and it's like, yeah, I saw a piece of it. I didn't see the big picture. There are some people that see the big picture. And the iPad changed the world. And apps changed the world. And it really, really, and you look at it a short period of time. I think sometimes change happens over a prolonged period of time. You know, you look at, at climate change. And I'm, I believe I'm a rational human being about it. Of course, it's happening. I mean, you can't put 7 billion ants on an apple and don't expect the apple to rot faster than if there were no ants on the apple. Yep. So, yes, we're impacting the planet. Should we go to electric cars? Absolutely. Oh, we're going to go to electric cars. What are we going to do with the lithium when the battery no longer recharges? We're going to go to electric cars. I think there are so many people that think electricity starts at the wall. You know, there's a whole lot of infrastructure that that, that nobody really looks at. So we all want to make these changes for the environment, but it's going to take a long time. And just because somebody says there should be a Green New Deal and we're going to do it tomorrow, it takes a long time to build an entire ecosystem and an entire infrastructure. Flip side, some things happen overnight because they have to. But Take hold a look on, in the pandemic, on. how that changed. That gets back to your ones and zeros. You're on mm. off. It doesn't you know, work. It doesn't Rarely. always work, right? It doesn't always work. Hopefully it does with a light switch. <laughs> but then again, they made dimmers. <laughs> So you you, uh, you started talking about the pandemic. Yeah, but, but the pandemic, look how quickly we all were able to get masks. Look how the world changed and behaviors changed. And I will never forget, I, I'm still more of a fist bumper because you know what? I, I was a bit of a germaphobe and now I have a great excuse. But it, it was mind boggling um, just watching how quick the handshake came back. I, I, I would have I, told you the handshake was never coming well, back. And, and it's funny you say that because the handshake is back. Everybody, like I've never been a germaphobe, so it doesn't even dawn on me. But uh, the, Fauci would say, hey, the handshake is done. We'll never do that again. Well, you know what? We're still human beings. We still want to touch each other and give each other a hug and whatever. Yeah, we forget human beings are pack animals. We don't want to admit that we're an animal. <laughs> yeah, but if you ever watched me eat, we know. <laughs> and you have watched me eat. But, it, but it's amazing. But, you know, going to the pandemic, think about this. In the middle 1800s, there was something that they called the, 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 the um, be, baby bed death or something. And it was mothers were dying within 48 hours after giving birth and it was like a pandemic and nobody knew what it was and actually oliver wendell holmes father who was a doctor sherlock holmes 
No, no, Oliver Wendell, the Supreme Court Justice. Oh, oh, okay. His, his father realized he was looking. So you had these doctors in the morning doing autopsies and doing these other things, and then they go and deliver babies. There was no instrument sterilization. There was no washing of the Seriously? hands. Nobody thought about it. And he said, dudes, what, he probably didn't use the word dude. He said, <laughs> wash your hands. You know, you need to wash your hands. You need to sterilize your instruments. And nobody listened to him. And the actual doctors were the problem. Sometimes we're the problem. We need to get out of our own way because we don't want to believe Sometimes the simplest answer, Occam's razor, the simplest answer is most often true. And for 30 years, nobody wanted to sterilize instruments, even though this brilliant guy said, wash your hands. And sure enough, slowly but surely, as instrument sterilization and enteric precautions and washing of the hands, mother death was cured. No kidding. Simplest answer. Um, so we know washing our hands is important. And then what does Dr. Fauci have to do? And I'm not going to get into the political stuff about Dr. Fauci. We he has to that. remind us, wash your hands. It's, <laughs> it's true. unbelievable. We, we, we solved that problem in the 1800s and then we forgot it. <laughs> and you see that happen in businesses all the time too. You, <laughs> did, you do something right and you forget that you were doing it right. That happens in my golf swing all the time. Not I enough. Was doing it right. Where'd it go? Not enough. And I see Tiger is trying to come back. He played golf yesterday at Augusta. So, so I guess what I'm hearing is you've got to be open to other opportunities, and you can't be closed-minded about things. Just like your Benny Hanna story. But how do you pick and choose? A/B testing, trial and error. Listen, anybody that doesn't make a mistake didn't take a risk. The issue is, it's like, I can't tell you how many times is, you know, I teach and I do some angel investing and I um, work with young people in incubators, building their and starting their businesses. And as we're having those conversations, you know, I, I look at them and I say, you got to take a risk. Somebody asked Edison about the light bulb. He says, it took you a thousand times and a thousand different filaments until you found the right filament. How do you deal with that failure? He says, I didn't fail. I found a, a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Right. <laughs> so he right. looked at the learning lesson. And then you talk about somebody that failed. And I, you know how I know somebody failed in a business? Their neck, the second sentence, so how's business? He goes, what a learning experience. <laughs> well, there you go. Learning experience. I want to say, how much do you lose? But it's if you learn from it, and you, the issue is not forgetting what you learned. It's... You know, Einstein, even though probably he wasn't the one first one to say it, was the definition of insanity is doing things the same way and expecting new outcomes. Learning is doing things to get to an outcome. And the scientific method is you test, you do something, you test, you examine, you have to be passionately dispassionate. I think one of the biggest problems is we get so, you know, implicit bias. We think the outcome's going to be this, so this is the outcome we go for. As opposed to, we let's cheat ourselves. Test. Let's test. Let's see if that really is the outcome. So, how do you be successful? You test, you observe, and you see. And again, how do you know? Um, you know, I, there are riches and niches, but it's are there simple product market fit? And that applies. 
product market fit applies to life. I'm not just talking about in business, do you have a product market fit? How about in life? Product market fit is I'm a product. I'm going to go into a room full of people. I'm not going to get along with everybody. Where is my fit? And if you find that right fit, there's nothing like it. And if you don't find the right fit, why are you going to stay with that group, right? Groucho Marx didn't want to join a club that wanted him because it was the <laughs> wrong fit. So it's, it's looking for where is that fit. And I, I, I think that's how do you figure out what's going to be successful. Is there a market for it and is there a fit? Okay, so that's talking about entrepreneurs. Now, what about in a business that's already in stability? So I'll use an example. I've got a really good buddy of mine that I'm going to do a podcast with next week, and he started a company called Deschutes Brewery in 1988. And now they're the, I think they're the fifth largest microbrewer in the country. He's got 500-plus employees. It's a solid business. He obviously found a niche. Now, he's been around for 30 years. What's the – and I haven't asked him, but – in a company that is, and it could be Nestle's or Procter & Gamble or whoever, how do you stay relevant and current? Uh, you know, it gets back to, we talked about corporate culture. I think that's clearly in the corner of all of it. Okay. What is your culture? Do you have team members or do you have employees? Do you, are you a top-down command and control? Or do you have empowerment? Do you create do you entrepreneurs think, do you think, and entrepreneurs? Just bear with okay. me on this for one sec. If you allow people to own their jobs and own their outcomes, you paint the vision. If people know the story, this is what we're trying to achieve. If they know this is my element, these are the things I need to do to achieve. And if you can then say, no different than every basketball team has a coach. The great coaches let the players play and show them the fine-tuning on playing better. The losing teams have a coach say, if you don't run this exact play, I'm going to put you on the bench. Because there's always real-time information that comes in. Nobody, except for those people that are in the game, know the real-time information. Has that changed? 30 years ago, when Red Auerbach was running the Celtics, or 40 years ago, whenever it was, uh, was he a different type of coach than the current coach. Yeah, but also, you know, everything changes. The only constant is change, with yep. the exception of the rules of physics. Yes. What goes up is still going to come down as long as gravity is in play. But with that said, the nature of, of the player has changed. I mean, if I had told you that Latrell Sprewell can choke P.J. Carlissimo and he's going to get to stay in the league... If some guy walked into your office and choked you, were you ever rehiring him? Never. Okay? So, so, so the world has changed. And money has changed the world. Okay? A coach, a great coach, maybe makes $5 million a year. A great player makes fifty. Right. <laughs> okay? Economics change the nature of the dynamics. I, I, so so but, but that's, that gets into a really ugly conversation of love of the game. And I think that's why... Why are so many more people knowing what's going on in the Elite Eight and the Final Four as opposed to what's going on in the NBA? Because the game at the college level is still somewhat pure because you know money pollutes it because of donors and stuff, but it's still a cleaner game than the NBA because the money's not involved. These kids know I'm playing for love because I'm not getting in the league. I cannot believe how hard those kids play. Because they love it. I mean, under the basket, it is rough and tough. 
And don't take a charge from a guy that outweighs you by <laughs> 90 pounds. No. So, um, now I've forgotten the question that, and I wasn't trying to, I was trying to get your attention, not interrupt. So forgive no, me. No, it's all good. Um, so what, when, when you're, when you're looking at these businesses and things have changed, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, and you, you said it about, about the only constant is, is change. Like everything evolves. Let's talk about social media and there are some, is it a positive change or is it a negative change? And how do we filter those things out? Wow. That's so above my pay grade. <laughs> but you're I, I teaching both. kids. I, you know, I, I see it. So, so number one, um, it's difficult now because I teach on Zoom, but I know exactly which kids are on social media because they're looking down. They're not looking up. <laughs> So I know, you know, because I have the visual accountability. So, so that that's a bit of a problem, I think. You know, and there was a great um, documentary uh, a little while ago about social media that really talked about all of it's designed to create endorphins and, and to make you addicted to it. So I think that's really bad. The flip side is um, the internet. So I'm going to go broader than just social media, but but access to information. When I was in the third grade. I was enamored with elephants. I thought elephants were the coolest thing ever. And we had to do a report. They are report. still pretty cool. <laughs> they are pretty cool. And by and, the way, they haven't changed. Yeah, they, They're still pretty cool. They're still pretty cool. <laughs> and um, I wanted to do a report on elephants when we had to do a report on, you know, on, on large animals. And I go to the library and the E encyclopedia is out, and I had to do zebras, which are also cool, but they're not elephants. They're a horse with attitude. But, so, but, attitude. I, couldn't do, but I couldn't do elephants. Today, every kid has access to every piece of information ever created. Yep. You know, when you and I were growing up, there was such a thing as a stupid question. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, there was no such thing as a stupid question. We were growing up because the, the access to information was we limited. We just didn't know. Today, there are stupid questions. Okay, I don't care what, what year the War of 1812 was fought, but I do care why. Okay, the Internet's not built for why. It's built for where and when. Whys are the, the human interaction. I want to be asked, a, how do I do that? Or why do I do that? I don't want to be asked, what do I do? Um, those are stupid questions. There's a manual for that. There's the internet for that. Okay. And I think that's the positive and the negative are social media doesn't help people with the why. They take the snippets and they, it creates narratives on why and it creates inferences on why. And so it's actually made us way more tribal. And that's problematic in the business in, in the business environment, because true diversity is diversity of thought. I saw a Denzel Washington interview that I thought was really great when they asked him about black directors, white directors, et cetera, and about diversity. And, and he said, diversity is not about color. And he said, you know, Martin Scorsese is an amazing director, but what his experience set made a better version of Schindler's List than the cultural and the experiences that Steven Spielberg had. So diversity is diversity of thought. It's diversity of experiences. 
And we have to stop being so focused on the tribal. It's, it's color, it's gender, it's religion. No, it's experience. Because if we can take it to experience, then we understand we all have an experience. And we can create shared experiences and different perspectives. But if we go tribal, if you're not black, if you're not, you know, this gender, you, you can't understand. Well, you didn't have the experience, but you can understand. And in corporations, that becomes problematic because you might pick the wrong person for the wrong reason. If you pick the person because they have the experience set that's going to make them great. Yep. Then you pick the right person. If you per pick the experience because you're only going to hire somebody that wears red shoes, you got a real problem on your hands. But if you pick the, the person, go back to the Revolutionary War. Why did the Brits wear red coats? They wore red coats so when they were shot, you didn't see the blood. That was the whole purpose of the red coat. Really? Yes. And so if you pick somebody because they're wearing a red coat, it doesn't make them a hero. But if you pick a guy that's been shot a couple of times and still is willing to stand in there, it does. What's his experience, not his coat? Same thing applies today. I'm a huge advocate of, of be an expert in whatever field. You can't be an expert in everything. You're not going to pick somebody to be a brain surgeon because of the color of their shoes or whatever. Yeah. You want somebody who knows what they're doing. A hundred percent. It's... I look at it, being an expert is, you know, they talk about the 10,000 hours, makes you an expert. But it's also be in your genius. Okay? And again, Steve Jobs, world's greatest marketer, he understood what the market wanted. And he also understood what the market didn't know they wanted until he brought it to them. And that's really um, where things uh, will go um, towards, towards greatness. So every person has a genius. And I think if you can figure out what your genius is and then get your 10,000 and become an expert, if you both have those two things, you're in alignment. I think when people are not in alignment is when you have the problem. Okay? I hired a, C a CFO when we were a private company he was an amazing private company CFO, but he couldn't be a public company CFO because it was a different set of a different set of knowledge, a different type of genius. So we had to be different. We had to find somebody different, and that did not make him an expert. It just he, and it just wasn't an expert in that. But his genius was still about the numbers and doing great things. So you can separate the two. And I think that's really important when you find pe people in that kind of alignment. It's also kind of interesting um, in the hiring, hiring and firing of people. It sounds really silly, but we hire people for their skills. Yeah. We fire them for their attitude. Because <laughs> they still have the skills most of the time. Interesting. And so focusing on attitude, I think, is equally important what does somebody bring to the party and that gets back into the diversity because what is the attitude they bring and how do you blend that how do you make that incredible stew with a little of this a little of that so it's just a better a better output well you've got a bunch of pearls every once in a while you know <laughs> I, I i read a lot and you know i'm a collector 
Now, some people collect cars. Some people collect art. I collect people. I have amazing people in my world. And today I'm talking way too much because that's what you asked me to do. But I'm a listener. Two ears, one mouth. Yeah. Use proportionately. Um, I saw a Simon Sinek interview once, and I, I thought this was a brilliant thought that he came up with or shared is, be the last to talk. Always, when you're, when you're in an environment, in a meeting, if you're the last to talk, you've absorbed a lot of information. Because when I talk, I don't learn anything. When you talk, I learn everything. I was watching a video of his, and, I, and I'm a huge fan. I don't know how this guy got so smart, but he is a brilliant I think he's thinker. a listener. I think he's a brilliant listener, or thinker. Um, but he, he, was, uh, he was telling a story that he, he got invited to be, um, uh, commencement is not the right he was invited to the board of directors meetings for both Microsoft and Apple one year. And he goes to Microsoft and Microsoft, 70% of their executives spend 70% of their time talking about the competition, how we got to beat them at this, we got to beat them at that. And then they took him out for dinner and they gave him the new uh, Surface and how cool it was and how interactive it was and how easy to use it was. And then he goes to Apple about a month later and he gives a talk to their board of directors for their annual general meeting and then he goes out for dinner with one of the uh, you know the senior people of apple and he goes you know i was i was speaking at the uh, agm for microsoft last month and he goes yeah i heard something about that and he goes and they were talking about this and that and their new product is incredible and it's interactive and it's easy to use and uh and all the guy said was i'm sure it's wonderful he goes microsoft's culture was to deal with the competition. Apple's culture was to deal with the teachers. They could care less what their competition was doing. And seeing how Apple's market cap is bigger than Microsoft's, <laughs> one could argue that right. they're doing something right. <laughs> but, you know, different people take different approaches. And listen, Microsoft's market cap is nothing to sneeze at either. And their user penetration is nothing to sneeze at. And the problems they solve is nothing to sneeze at. So both have a place in life. You know, Jack Welch used to say, be number one, two, or out. Well, you just talked about number one and number two. <laughs> well, I go into, a, I go into a, a Verizon store and I see Google Pixel and I see AT&T and BlackBerry has gone by the way of the Dodo, I think. And there's two phones out there. There's either Samsung or there's Apple. And it's just interesting. But it's the two platforms. It's the Google platform. That's right. You know, Microsoft had a, you know, they, they have an operating system. It just never really, in the mobile world, I can't tell you why they missed. I, I have my own thoughts, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world, so I'll keep them to myself. But absolutely, Google um, did it right. And they made the, you know, the Android operating system and Apple iOS. And think about this. Apple, for as brilliant as they are, for the first couple of years, the operating system on the phone was different than the operating system on the iPad. There were two different systems until they, um, years later, made it to one common. I did not. I didn't know that either. Yeah. So, so e even the smartest people come up with realizations somewhere along the line because they learn. So you mentioned that Apple is the smartest marketing company. A hundred percent. Really? How the hell could you sell a music recorder and the only ad showed people with white headphones 
right? You never saw the iPod. This goes back, so some of your listeners are going to say, well, iPod, what the hell is an iPod? But the original, the original commercials were shadow figures with white, you know, with, with white headset because they realized Apple's a cult, and they tried to make, if you have an iPad, you're one of the cool, cool kids. people. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, you know, that gets into the culture. Look at, if I say Harley Davidson, you know exactly what most of those riders yep. are like, which is dramatically different than if I say Suzuki. Um, but certain cultures, now, if I say the word Marvel, you know exactly what kind of movie you're going to get. Yep. If I say Disney, you know exactly what kind of movie you're going to get. If I say 20th Century Fox, who knows? But if I say Liam Neeson, you know somebody's getting taken. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's right. So, you know, marketing is about building a brand that people can recognize and bond towards. And, and Apple, Tesla, Nike, I mean, these people are masters at building their brand and communicating the brand message and making people want to be part of their cult. That's one of the ways you build businesses. And I'll go back to your magazine. You guys have a cult following because it doesn't look like anything else. It, it's, it's amazing branding and it sends a message. I want to be with the cool kids. I want to be, look at, look at all of those other ads. I want to be known by the company I keep and these are the best in the business. You know, it's, that's what branding is. It's so interesting that you go back to, and I can envision, and it's kind of like the the headphones were, so that you could put anybody's face underneath the headphones. What a cool idea! And when when I sent you the black box for our magazine, you went straight to what Apple had done years ago with with the whole even the sound, yeah, the vacuum sound when you open a whether it be a a MacBook Pro or or their iPad or their it's the the brand starts when you walk into the store when the brand starts when you walk in you know when you log into their website but it continues it's an experience when you get an Apple product the experience starts at the unboxing and think of the whole industry you created how many YouTube videos are around unboxing Opening a box was never exciting until Apple made opening a box exciting. Isn't that awesome? It, it's, you know, it's easy to see it in, you know, hindsight's 2010 vision. Forget about that 2020 stuff. Right, right. You can have a really good yeah. focus. Well, on that's because that. of the internet. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, in our last few minutes, I want, to, I want to talk to you about what you see coming in the future. You teach these kids. You're at Loyola and Florida International. University. Yeah. So, so I, I've taught at um, Florida Atlantic, but I teach at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And it's interesting. I think there's going to be a little hiccup because I do think the lockdowns and the pandemic changed the way people behave. Um, you know, the, the best thing that happened was to Eric Yoon and Zoom. I, I mean... What better to build a business in a pandemic? But now it's going to stick. Because forgetting about the pandemic, people realize they can work from almost anywhere. And we have the technology. We have the tools. So it's, it, it absolutely is. It was great for you know, Microsoft Teams. It's great for Zoom and, and various other collaborative tools. But it's been bad for people. 
And in some respects, it's been bad for people because they can hide behind it as opposed to interact. It's much harder to network. So I think we lost a generation of interactivity. It will come back, but it will come back differently. Um, I was just at a trade show up in Orlando, and it was mind-boggling how packed it was. It was more packed than, than it was pre-pandemic because okay. people were so grateful just to be out. Yep. Um, and so I think pendulums swing both ways. Um, the kids today, 10 times better on researching. But, I, but universities even are going to change. The concept of brick-and-mortar universities, you can start an online university, deliver the same level of content, and you don't have to spend all this money on a campus. And now people don't necessarily want to go to a campus. So I think the nature of education may or may not change depending on what consumers truly want. But I do think Zoom and what's gone on in the last couple of years to going back to your concept of experts is going to create a lot more experts because now people are so used to consuming knowledge on a video platform. But do they have to do it synchronous or asynchronous? Synchronous meaning they're in a classroom with other people and it's live. Or you can get an entire college education on YouTube for free. And you can dive deep. You know, Elon Musk does, talks about he doesn't necessarily believe in college because, look, I was grateful um, because I was a bachelor for 15 years after being married for a long time. Um, I'm glad I took an art appreciation course. It came in, it came in handy. <laughs> that I, who knew I was going to use it years later? And I was forced to take it as a distribution requirement. Um, so getting that bachelor's degree and getting a whole plethora of experiences because you had to take some philosophy. So I couldn't just take science and engineering type classes. I had to get this broad education. But I think today people are going to be better experts because, you know, I have some students right now that are so fascinated with cryptocurrency and blockchain. You know, when they graduate, They'll know more about that than they will ever know about entrepreneurship or about marketing or about management because they've put their 10,000 hours in researching that one topic. And we have better researchers today because it's so much easier because the access to all the world's information is in your pocket. And I think these kids will lead the world that way. You know, I don't want to get political. Some of this woke stuff, you know, pendulums swing both ways. I think that it will come back because... People find out when we make these sociologic changes, some work and some don't, and it's how is this serving me? And right now, all of a sudden, we're all looking at the potential World War III. Yep. Some of this, these things that we thought were incredibly important, not so, not so important. Yep. So the pendulum will come both ways, but I think the way people consume content and consume knowledge will change the way they will behave in the future. And people will have access to things that they never had access to before. I think there are industries we can't even think of that will exist. Um, I think mobility will change. And the kids that are in school now, they're the ones that are going to be the drivers. And we just better get on the, the, the train. The thing that I can't stand is, and I deal with this with my own children, they will, they'll send me a text message and I'll call. They will not answer. And then they'll text back, what's up? I think we've lost the beauty of interactivity. I think we've lost the beauty of eye contact. And I'm hoping that comes back. Yeah, 
I, I look at it, and I was going to mention that, uh, but I did learn from before not to interrupt you. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But um, that's the one. I have Alzheimer's. I'm going to forget <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> no, that that is the one thing that I, I, I really fear for this generation and the generations behind. Technology has been great. Social media, I'm... I'm a total mixed bag on that because I think it makes people who are not experts, it makes them angry. Whereas if you sat down with somebody for 10 minutes, most of the time you can get through it and solve problems. And also I think it's worse. It makes people that are not experts believe they're experts because they have followers. Right. I know. <laughs> Which is mind boggling to I me. I know. And, and, you know, all the, all the, you know, I, I avoid politics in this, this whole genre because there's no wind to it. But people are still people at the end of the day, and we need to be socially interactive. We need to go to the football games, the basketball games. Look at how much more fun it is to watch Mark, March Madness when the place is packed. Yeah, 100%. As opposed to last year where nobody was allowed to go. And, and imagine, fun for, for the imagine kids. for the players. Yeah. yeah p- p- believe it or not, players like being booed as much as they like being <laughs> cheered. You know, I, I have a, a good friend who's a former Navy SEAL. And the two things that he says all the time, and I think they're so incredibly positive, but just just incredibly powerful statements. He talks about apostrophe T, the difference between can and can't. And you can, somebody says you can't, you have two choices. You, You believe what they just said, or it motivates you to amazing levels. Either way, your world just changed when you heard an apostrophe T. And the other thing, and, and I know that a lot of this is, is to be inspirational to the next generation because everybody, everybody can succeed. You know, I grew up in the inner city. I grew up with no, no money to speak of, lots of love. I, you know, so I don't ever want people to say, oh, my God, that guy was poor. We were surrounded with so much love. Who knew what we had? But he has a statement, and, and he honors his mother. And so I will honor Robin Roberts' mother. Because she used to say to him, if you want to be successful, all you need to do is want something more than everybody else wants to take it away from you. And that's the key. If you want it, go for it. As long as you're not denying someone else in the process. Right? Don't go for it. You know, I, I don't like that whole thing. You're, when you're climbing the ladder, you're stepping on other people. As long as everybody has the opportunity to climb the ladder, it's their choice if they're coming up with you yeah. or not. But I, I think that's probably the greatest thing. Just you want something more than somebody wants to take it away from you, and you'll get it. Well, growing up in Philly must have been tough because that is one tough city. Yeah, it, it had its moments. <laughs> but I have some of the greatest friends and some of the greatest memories from being there. Okay, last last question, and I was going to leave it there because it's a great ending. What you you mentioned this earlier, and I'm such an advocate of when you fail, you learn, and they make the best stories. Do you still today think back on when you were a kid in Philly and look to to not not be not be excited about where you are now, but just appreciate the journey along the way instead of feeling you know downtrodden about getting kicked in the head several times you know if you dwell on the negative you live a negative life but i'm gonna the flip side is i think having gratitude every day makes a huge difference listen there by the grace of god go i 
Um, and again, I'm going to close out again with a Simon Sinek thing where he talks a story about a guy um, who was like an undersecretary of state, spoke at a conference, and then a year later they invited him back to speak again, but he was no longer with you know um, the government. And he said, as he's holding his styrofoam cup, you know, a year ago I was here. You guys flew me out first class. This year I'm here. I flew myself out. Last year you had somebody pick me up at the airport. This year I brought myself. Last year you guys had a fancy cup for me to drink from. This year I'm in a styrofoam cup. And Simon's realization was the gifts you have are about often your position not about who you are. Always remember who you are because the success brings great things. Listen, I have met the most amazing people, but it's what I did with it. They're, I get to meet them because of my success. I get to keep them because I try to be a decent human being. So don't confuse the trappings of your success, which are absolutely associated to the position you had appreciate the trappings of success because you have a higher likelihood of keeping them and making the most out of them. Well, that's a good point to, uh, to end and begin the next episode. Semisonic. Remember that song from the eighties? Every new beginning comes from some beginnings. End. <laughs> Lou, so thank you. This was awesome. And we're shaking hands because I'm a germaphobe with most, but not with this guy. <laughs> Lou, thanks for coming on. I, I love uh, our relationship and where it's going. I greatly appreciate you and your insights and the help that you've given our company. My pleasure. Even the caricatures that I'm working on right now, that was kind of a funny little deal last time. So uh, until next time, I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine with Lou Jaffa. Thanks, Lou. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below. I'm Ted Bainbridge, and you've been listening to Friends of Build Magazine podcast. <laughs>